Hi, I'm Vanessa Van Alstein, and this is Art I Swear. Now, I have a fun little update for you this week. It turns out, you know, kind of funny, because we talked about Impressionism last week. A performance artist recently did a performance of Olympia by Manet in the Louvre and got kicked out and caused a whole ruckus, because apparently naked women still piss people off 150 years later, 150 plus years later. So uh, just a little something to think about when you're looking at that naked woman in uh, the Louvre all sprawled out with her maid and her cat. Well, the reason is, is because she's trying to have a dialogue with an old painting. I'll admit I struggle with performance art probably more than I should, but, you know, I think it is a legitimate commentary on a painting that was about ordinary women. Now on to our topic today. We're going to talk about a modernist artist named Piet Mondrian. Now, if you want a quick and dirty summary, Piet Mondrian was born in, I'm going to say it's pronounced Amersfoort, Netherlands. In 1872, he died in Manhattan, New York in 1944, which makes him Dutch. He was famous for these block paintings and being a member of the Distill movement. Da -da 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 -da. That's all, folks. You don't really have to listen to the rest of the podcast. Haha, -ha, just kidding. We'll get a little bit more in depth here. Now, his father... Um, you know, to give you a little background on him, was a Calvinist preacher who, and draftsman who was also involved in a primary school. Um, this means that he was a very strict Orthodox Protestant Christian. Calvinists aren't really Protestant, whatever. Calvinists do, however, believe in predestination. This is the idea that people are born on earth, saved through Jesus, or not saved, and that everything that kind of happens in between is, well, you know, stuff God's already figured out. So try to be a good person, but, you know, you were born being a good or bad person, so, you know, <laughs> you know what's in your heart, and you know if you're going to heck. I, I've never really completely gotten Calvinism. You guys are great, nice, you help, you help create Mondrian, but, you know, all right, so how does this affect Mondrian's art? Well, early on, number one, because his father's a draftsman, he's exposed to art. They're more accepting of art school than a lot of, uh, you know, kind of middle-class families would be back in the day. But he also has this spiritual connection with the world around him, and he really spends the first 30 years of his life struggling with that, who he is, how that fits in the world. His artwork is... You know, he's always got a dialogue with what's going on in the day. Very early on, it's Impressionist influence. It's the loose brush strokes. It's the impression of light. And it quickly moves into what I would call a Fauvism or post-Impressionism, where, uh, you know, he's talking about Gauguin or Van Gogh, as most of you probably know, who's got that, like, real bright colors. Uh, things are more primitive or primal. And uh, it's looking more back at the modern aspects of art, such as the things that we're starting to see from Africa. It's very much referencing those bright colors in the woodblock prints. And those bright colors that come out of that period are going to be really important for Mondrian later on. Now, once again, most of my relatives sound like King of the Hill rejects. So these Dutch words I'm going to pronounce, please give me a little bit of leeway. I think even non-Dutch people struggle with some of them. At least it's not Polish. <laughs> Mondrian's spiritualism draws him to start to look at the nature of the world around him. Early on, he's very interested in plain air paintings. Like I said, he paints a lot of trees. There's a period he goes through where he's got these very like blocky pictures that are of windmills. 
And I've actually seen one of these at the Dallas Museum of Art. And there is a major difference between seeing art in person and art in just pictures. And I have to say, those early windmills, I personally, I'm not that impressed with them. The subject is so important, but not very original. He's not doing anything in this really early part of his career, his post-World War I career, that's, you know, really greatly remarkable. Now, closer to World War I, he is in Paris, and he starts to see cubist painting and this is where you're probably going to think about that guy everybody knows picasso um or maybe the founder of the movement who picasso kind of copies who i want to say his name said george brock i always want to say jorge because i live so close to mexico anyways a very limited palette when you start talking about cubism it's a lot of browns they're trying to show all of the angles of something if you can think about an object when you pick it up since we don't have the magic of 3d modeling back then they're trying to look at an object and capture all of the sides to like kind of fold it out and present it in this flat space as having both dimension and kind of no dimension in a way so that you know all of the sides are present i'm probably like spinning in a circle here trying to explain this which is part of the broken down abstracts of this. And once again, these guys are very much looking at primitive African art. And I say primitive art, you know what? That's probably not fair. They're looking at tribal art from Africa, mostly North Africa, some Saharan Africa. Picasso has a really big collection of African masks that are influential in a lot of his paintings and some of them, uh, the nude women he paints are wearing them. And, you know, this is important for cubism, but this isn't something that interests Mondrian as much. His old spiritualism from being raised as a Calvinist, being exposed to more ideas in Paris, it begins to broaden. He becomes less focused on Christianity and more focused on universal truths. One of the things he says about his work, which begins to become more boxy, more about lines, I believe it is possible that through horizontal and vertical lines constructed with awareness, but not with calculation, led by high intuition and brought to harmony and rhythm, these basic forms of beauty, supplemented if necessary by other direct lines or curves, can become a work of art as strong as it is true. That comes from this idea he has of plastic art. And this is one of those words that doesn't translate well. We think of plastic and you're thinking about those cheap cups you got in the cupboard, right? That you only keep around because you drop the last ones and break it everywhere and your husband will yell at you and then make you get ones with lids because you have the world's most obnoxious kitten anyways. So you have a bastion of well-designed Starbucks cups. Not that kind of plastic. We're talking about plastic as in movement, as in the quality to take on different forms. So, that, that plastic, the ability to adapt. He begins to form these theories about art encapsulating more than just form. That the value and the spiritual quality of painting is best expressed in something that is not just the physical. So he begins to abandon his trees. He begins to abandon his windmills. And he starts to move into these pure lines, vertical and horizontal. He's very interested in dichotomy. You know, one side of this, one side of that. 
not as much the balance in between, but the extremes that things go to. And I feel like this is a very Western viewpoint at the time. Now, I said he'd gone to Paris pre-World War I. Well, fortunately, unfortunately, he goes to visit some family before the war breaks out. And as the war stretches into Paris, he's safe, but he can't go back to France. The Netherlands stays out of World War I. They remain neutral all through the conflict. And there's several artists and architects who are trapped there that begin to talk about the new ideas in art, and they form their own school, Distill Forms. Distill translates into English as the style, and this is more than fashion. The style also has to do with building and construction in its root word, which is something that's lost a little bit in the English translation. This is the problem when texts and philosophical theories come over into English from another language. That's one of the things that's lost in Heidegger a lot is when you're talking about the root of a certain word, if it doesn't have the same meaning in the other language, it's hard to explain. So try to understand that style means more than just fashion to these guys, distill. They even sit down and write a manifesto, which is very popular during the modernist period, which I argue occurs between roughly before World War I and about 20 years after World War II. Some people say it stretches into the 70s and then you start to have postmodernism. I feel like there's enough periods in between there that modernism really kind of starts to die after World War II. Anyways, during modernism, everybody loves a manifesto. And this is the manifesto of the distill. Number one, there is an old and new consciousness of time. The old is connected with the individual. The new is connected with the universal. The struggle of the individual against the universe is revealing itself in the world war as well as in the art of the present day. Number two, the war is destroying the old world and its contents, individual domination in every state. Number three, the new art has brought forward what the new consciousness of time contains, a balance between the universal and the individual. Number four, the new consciousness is prepared to realize the internal life as well as the external life. And this is the plasticity we were talking about. That's, that's me interjecting. Number five, traditions, dogmas, and the domination of the individual are opposed to this realization. Number six, the founders of the new plastic art therefore call upon all who believe in the reformation of art and culture to annihilate these obstacles of development as they have annihilated in the new plastic art by abolishing natural form, that which prevents the clear expression of art, the utmost consequence of all art notion. Number seven, the artists of today have been driven the whole world over by the same consequences and therefore have taken part from an intellectual point of view in this war against the domination of individual despotism. They therefore sympathize with all who work for the formation of an intellectual unity of life, art, culture, either intellectually or materially. Number eight, the monthly editions of The Style, which is a magazine, founded by the purpose Try to attain the new wisdom of life in an exact manner. Number nine, cooperation is possible by, number one, sending the entire approval, name, address, and profession 
to the editor of The Style, number two, sending critical, philosophical, architectural, scientific, literary, musical articles or reproductions, number three, translating articles in different languages or distributing thoughts published in The the Style. And the signers of this, they're painters like Theo van Doesburg, um, Piet Mondrian, there's a poet, Anthony, I'm going to say that's Koch. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, G. Vanderloo is a sculptor. There's an architect, Jan Wills. The big guys here are Theo van Doesburg, um, Bart van Leck, and, and, you know, Piet Mondrian. They all have this really heavy influence on each other, and they're all very interested in basic form. They're trying to get rid of that concept of man and art and find the pure essence of art as a way of purification. I think this is interesting to look at too in the face of World War One, And this is not something that would quote me on a paper, but maybe an academic could study a little more someday, is to look at how World War One was fought. Previously, soldiers did form into lines and march swiftly into battle and shot at each other. Uh, guerrilla warfare is part of what won the American Revolution because the British were wearing bright red coats and just marching in straight lines. But World War I abandons this and we scar the ground. We dig these trenches, these nightmare holes where men sit in divisions, broken up by the lines that these painters are very much putting on paper. And they're isolated to these little quadrants the french here the english here the germans here the austrians there and we're mass manufacturing war the human being that has been the ideal in art for so very long has created a better way to kill themselves guns can shoot hundreds of bullets in a second tanks are marching over the ground Gas is filling trenches and killing men. This is when war becomes a new level of ugly. And in a lot of ways, it's mirroring the industrial revolution that is sweeping through the world. The revolution that's bringing new lines and wires, new city planning, which Brussels is an inspiration to Mondrian because of the civil engineering that occurs in it. The world is increasingly defined by these geometric lines because that is what the machine makes. And so these artists and like are looking at the perfection of those lines, the removal of the organic from art. And you start to see in these isolated Dutch painters of the distilled during World War I, increasingly geometric painting works. Mondrian starts his block period now and he begins to experiment with these paintings he calls lozenges, which are paintings that are hung like a diamond instead of a square. He's basically turned them so that they hang different and they have that broken line quality. He's taking it from his tree paintings that he did during the Cubist period where they were these you know, just barely a tree kind of curves off, kind of has the lines. He's still referencing things. One of the lozenges is about docks. Um, and those are a little later. He explores those more after World War One, but that's, that's the ones I think about. And he starts to break away from the cubist color scheme. He starts to develop his own. He did go through this period where he's using these 
really interesting diluted pastels. And this starts to change. He starts to develop that love of primary colors that is going to so define him. And if you don't know what a primary color is, it's the three colors you use to mix all painted medium, which is red, blue, yellow. This is different when you get into like light and print and stuff, but we're just focusing on red, blue, yellow, black, white. To him, this is the core of creation. This is the core you need to create artwork, and it's the core he's going to use in the rest of his paintings after World War One. And he does go back to Paris, and he does begin to expand on what he's doing. He's very much a modernist, and he's very influential at this point, but still predominantly a European painter. And after World War One, he begins to create the paintings in the 20s and 30s. And if you think about that, that's, that's a, almost 100 years ago now. It might even be 100 years ago when you listen to this podcast. <laughs> the paintings he creates are about this segmented reality. It's black lines that don't quite reach the edge of the paint paper. And looking for images of him during this period, if you want to root out fake ones, they'll cut off all the way at the end of the painting his like in-between works don't do this it's his later works that reach all the way to the edge of the paper and there's these um white sections like cells and these color sections of one of the primary colors now what's interesting in reproductions of mondrian paintings versus seeing actual mondrian paintings which once again it's very different seeing art in person sometimes in the reproductions, they look almost like a piece of print, like a screen print or something that comes out of a printer. They're very perfect. And there are still very, very perfect in person, but the brush stroke is more present. Also, a lot of them have started to crack just due to age. Uh, oil paints dry out and they break open. Acrylic paint isn't really something that you're going to see prominent in art until post-World War II, really more into the 60s and 70s, acrylic paint at its heart is a water-based plastic. Oil paint is oil-based. I guess it's kind of like a plastic, but it's not what we think. So those cracks have become part of the dialogue with his work, along with those very faint brush strokes and how much he's gone over the colors. In some of the paintings, it's very obvious that there's a line of blue on the edge of what was once the red paint. I like to think this is something that probably influenced people like Andy Warhol, who later offsets his prints. Mondrian isn't as deliberately doing that, and that's not what the work's about, but it's still a key as to his process. Because a lot like Monet, when I talked about him in our Impressionist podcast, Mondrian was a meticulous mofo. He does everything with complete precision and intention. And you might think that these paintings are deceptively simple. How hard could it be to set that up and do it? But he agonizes over every choice on the canvas and often changes things several times over. And when you're working with white paint, especially white oil paint, that is a difficult and agonizing decision. One of the ways that he does this, and you can occasionally see recreations of this, is he set up a giant white wall where he would lay out his black elements in either tape or paper and his colored elements in paper and move them around. And he was one of the people that embraced the concept of all-over art, which is important in the later Bauhaus schools. 
if you're thinking of the band ball house, you know, red on black, translucent, red, Bella Lugosi's dead. Not the band. They took their logo and um, their name from a school of artists that exists in Germany post-World War One and kind of post-World War Two. They come to America because a lot of them were Jewish and had to flee. This idea of all over art originally comes from Wagner, and this is based on an old book I had on the Bauhaus. Um, when he created his operas, he believed in everything coordinating, down to how the hall looked, to the tickets, to the handbills that were handed out. He wanted full coordination. And this idea eventually passes on to a Dutch artist named Henri Vandervelde, and Vandervelde is in dialogue with the later Bauhaus, obviously Mondrian as well. And another interesting Mondrian fact, originally he went to the school that Van Gogh went to, but like Van Gogh became kind of disillusioned with how interested they were in classicism and blazed his own path by going to Paris. So in this period between World War I and World War II, his work reaches what we're all thinking about as the typical Mondrian paintings. And he continues this work up until World War II, when unfortunately Europe goes to war again. And when Europe goes to war, he's faced with the fact that he's really not safe in the Netherlands. The Nazis hated modern art. They felt like it was primitive, that it was base, and that it was, you know, that it flew in the face of everything that the Reich was trying to do. Also, Hitler's a failed artist, and the kind of art that he was trying to make was classicism. It was landscapes. It was nudes. And I've seen some of them. He's not a very good artist. I mean, I think it's obvious since he funked out of art school, but he can't even nail um, perspective, which is a really basic element of art. Hold on. I've got a kitten sniffing the microphone. Go away, kitty. In the face of what's obviously persecution, a lot of modernist artists flee to the America and Mondrian decides to go to Manhattan. And when he gets to Manhattan, he's surrounded by something that has influenced him this whole time, but he's now got greater access to, and that's jazz. If you can think about jazz music now, the like free flowing scat, like booty bop 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 bop, some Ella Fitzgerald, maybe some Cab Calloway, Dizzy Gillespie, that fun music that's that fun music that's real hip and swift and has come out of new orleans and has really kind of colored the way the world listens to things now that big influence on rock and roll that's free-flowing and fun and you don't even have to read music to make it you can just go ahead and do it and be a jazz artist and i'll think about a mondrian once again you have these like segmented pieces and think about how jazz hits. It hits on these big segmented notes. It's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, bop, one, two, three, four, bam, that kind of thing. And so when he's exposed to this in New York in the 40s, he looks at that and he looks at the American culture that exists in New York and his artwork takes on its final metamorphosis. The lines aren't always black anymore. Sometimes they're yellow. And the squares shrink and they become part of the lines. And it really becomes about traffic, the civil engineering, the civil planning of New York, combined with that constant hum and rhythm that exists alongside this jazz music that he's now really able to immerse himself in. It changes how he sees things. My favorite painting and one of his last ones from this period is Broadway Boogie Woogie. 
I think it's Broadway Boogie Woogie. It's Broadway Boogie, maybe. I always want to add the woogie because the woogie's fun. How can you have the boogie without the woogie? You know what I'm saying? Anyways, and these are yellow lines with the red, blue, white, black squares on it. And it looks kind of like looking straight down on traffic. And it looks kind of like blinking electric lights. And it looks kind of like a city that's starting to build up to become this neon paradise where artists can thrive. And it looks kind of like little ants moving around in a giant ant bed. It looks like the essence of New York City. And it looks like the promise of America, this new modern utopia where the threatened people of Europe can now escape and start again, where we're not so entrenched in the hatred of European culture that's built up between centuries of wars and centuries of prejudice that led to the horrors of World War II. It's, it's promise. And if I had to give a pictorial explanation of why America is great in the years after World War II, I would actually show you these paintings by Mondrian because I feel like they capture it on its most basic elemental level. Which if you think back on what he's trying to do with art, capture that dichotomy, capture that place where people don't exist, but there is still a spiritual elegance in painting, a spiritual essence captured in the paint, removed from just one figural representation. I feel like these really get that. And there's a painting that's come to light recently called Victory Boogie, which was the last one he was working on when he passed away in the 40s, that shows how he did this. He's taken his art off of the walls. And he's using little bits of colored paper to figure out where he wants to paint or overpaint or do whatever. And this painting actually still has those little pieces of paper attached to them. And I think that that's so cool because it's still this little piece of him thinking, planning, deciding. It's still that little piece of meticulousness. It's still that man that completely changed his apartment so that it matched all of the artwork he was making so that he would be constantly thinking about how to perfect his craft. I want to talk about an OCD guy? I know Louise Nevelson said that the clean starkness of his studio really influenced her sculptural work, which are these box pieces that have like cut out piece of wood that are painted a flat color. And that's what Mondrian also gives to American artists is the influence of the European style brought into America to live out his final years. He's capturing this essence of modernity and America's benefiting from that. And that is the one gift that was given to us by World War II, inadvertently by Nazi Germany, was all of these brilliant scientists and artists and creative individuals that came here, that soaked in American culture, and then taught it back to us from the eyes of the old European masters. And it has become the language of what America is as far as our creative arts. I can't always speak outside of creative arts because, hey, you are what you know. All right, this has been an episode of Art, I Swear. This podcast was requested by my friend Michael C. Mike's thanks so much for the suggestion. I hadn't really looked at a lot of Mondrian's work before I researched this podcast, but, you know, it was good to see it, and it's given me some ideas. Art, I Swear would like to acknowledge these creatives. 
Ellie Klaus has written a book called Stealing the Wolf Prince. It's a romantic kind of fairy tale written with, I, I like to think modern sensibilities, but, you know, with a real romantic eye. It's available now on Amazon's Kindle uh, at a reasonable price for your ebooks. Check her out. She's a really good friend of mine. And in lieu of, you know, sponsors, I'd like to acknowledge some creative people I know. Art, I swear, would like to thank Joe Giggs for our intro and outro. If you're looking for an awesome DJ in the New York City area who can definitely make you Broadway boogie woogie, check out Joe Giggs. That's G-I-G-S. Art, I swear, would also like to thank Iridial's Conant Project for allowing us to sample number stations for the intro-outro. This is Art, I swear, and you have a creative day. Vanessa Van Alstein, and welcome to the podcast, Art, I Swear. Today's podcast was requested by an artist named Jen Silva. Her and her husband own a comic company. If you like to check out some neat science-based comics or maybe connect with some fun artists. So like I said, Jen suggested the topic, and the topic is a sculptor named Louise Nevelson. If you like the quick and dirty on Louise Nevelson, she was born in Kiev, Russia in 1888, died in the United States in the 1980s, and she was a sculptor who mostly worked with found wood objects. Da-da-da-da-da-da, that's all, folks. I'm going to give a little bit of a warning. Louise Nevelson was a colorful person, and there's going to be a couple of quotes of hers I use that have the F-bomb in them, so if you're real sensitive to curse words, you might turn away. So I want to talk about Louise Nevelson's early life when we're discussing her, because she is born a Jewish woman in what is a very volatile time and place for Jewish people. Kiev it's Russia when she's born. It's the Ukraine now. And it is a center uh, for Jewish culture and thought in that in Eastern Europe at the time. There is a large number of Jewish people in the city. And as things in Russia get a little more dicey with the czars and later the communists, the the Jewish people in Kiev start to move their family from Russia into Kiev and make it an even bigger center. And just like what happened in Germany and has happened all over the world in Europe, because man, as much as we want to think Europeans are enlightened and progressive and so much better than us people from the United States, the reality is there's anti-Semitism has a strong history. Uh, Hating the Romani or gypsies or whatever you want to call them has a strong history. And usually they have a neighbor that they just can't stand. This isn't everybody, of course, but let's let's not pretend like the United States invented bigotry or racism, okay? As the Jewish people start to develop a more prominent economic center in Kiev, like I said, just like what happens in Germany in the 40s, 30s and 40s, <laughs> they people get jealous. They see this culture that's come together really out of necessity. 
because they're so discriminated against and see the influence and power they've created once again out of necessity and sometimes to serve weird European cultural norms because if you won't do something, somebody's going to step in and do what you won't do. So this anti-Semitism actually causes some pogroms. The first ones happen in the 1880s. The next one occurs in 1905, and that's around the time she leaves Kiev. Now, I don't know if she was really exposed to that pogrom. The reality is, though, she was in a volatile atmosphere that made it to where leaving her home country had been ideal to her relatives for generations and they're now worried enough they're sponsoring her large family to get out of their native country and her father passes during this time he's not able to go to the united states with her and this actually traumatizes louise quite a bit and her last name isn't nevelson at this point it's a russian name that i'm i'm not going to be able to pronounce right i'm not even going to try you can look it up mad respects to the russians and ukrainians especially because y'all are the like mad hackers of the world oh my god please don't get mad at me i just uh, don't want to dishonor your culture by my clumsy pronunciation there's some stories that after her father's death she actually doesn't talk for six months that's disputed what is known is the family relocates to bristol maine and even in modern day bristol maine is not a thriving metropolitan hub by any stretch of the means i I think the largest city in maine doesn't even have a million people and you know mad props to people from maine i've got some really good friends from there so louise nevelson never likes living in this small maine city being you know kind of a rural girl and despite being around people from her culture, and she always embraces her culture, going through that kind of trauma, um, it's going to make you closer to your group of people. Not that it's bad to stay close. Um, I'm just specifying that she doesn't wander away from her faith like Mondrian did, like a lot of artists do. But she, she always stays connected to her Jewish heritage and is very supportive of it even more so after things go wrong in the 30s and 40s. This is also to say she graduates high school in 1918. So I want to specify that she she's a little bit older than some people who are going to make it when she makes it. Just keep that in the back of your head. And in 1918, she gets out of Maine. She goes and meets a wealthy industrialist named Charles Nevelson. They get married shortly after she provides him a son and she spends 11 years playing the role of the good high society Jewish wife and hates every minute of it. I, she's just not happy with who her husband wants her to be. She spends a lot of money. He doesn't like that. He's constantly on her back. She's still trying to create artwork, which isn't seen as an appropriate hobby for a wealthy industrialist's wife. Um, and those two just butt heads a lot. She's also, I, well, I, I have no doubt she loved her son. I, I don't think anybody would argue that she was really the best mother. She's there for Mike, but in the 30s, her and her mother agree that she's just miserable. Divorce is okay. And she sells a bracelet that her husband gave her that was made out of diamonds so that she can take off to Paris and Germany to learn art with the Cubists. 
who are not really the cutting edge of art at this point, but that's, we're just, I guess I'm trying to say that cubism is not at its height at this point. So it's a little weird that she's so fixated on it, but Louise Nevelson is, if you can't tell, not a fan of convention and her mother keeps her son for a number of years. Eventually his father ends up with custody and they kind of do this back and forth. It's almost like, you know, the nasty eighties marriages that I feel like kids my age grew up with just a whole lot earlier and when it was not seen as appropriate at all. And that's one of the areas where you probably could criticize Louise Nevelson. She does give her son work and as they get older, they kind of make up and have a little bit better of a relationship. And some of this I'm basing on a book that was supposed to be an official biography approved by her. She died during the creation and had pulled out her approval. I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to check out the book. But, you know, anything you're hearing from other sources, grain of salt. Louise Nevelson ends up studying with Cubists in Germany during the 30s and 40s. And you can all probably guess where this is going. It's not only extremely dangerous to be an abstract artist in Germany during this period, being a Jewish abstract artist, she just has to get out. She gets out with all of the other people from like the ball house and stuff and ends up back in New York City. What she's accomplishing at this point is she's a very gifted muralist. She actually teaches uh, mural painting uh, for the WAP during World War II. And she still is making sculpture, a lot of found object work. And when I say found object, there's an artist you probably want to Google named Joseph Cornell. He's who invents those words. And it's taking items, everyday items from newspapers, from the street, from trash, from advertising, from wherever you find them, and recontextualizing them together and recontextualizing means that what they symbolize and what they stand for is new. Recontextualization is a word I will use again when we talk about contemporary art because it becomes very important in postmodernism. But back here with the modernist, it's still going on. The trick with Nevelson at this point is she has not hit her stride. She's very, very poor not doing very well. One of the interesting people she studies with around this time is Diego Rivera. And she finds a kinship with the, you know, left-leaning communist sorts from Mexico. And it's widely understood that she has an affair with Diego Rivera. She never confirmed this. Frida Kahlo never really confirmed this. I I do know there's some, I've read some writings from Nevelson where she did not approve of Frida, Frida Kahlo. She kind of saw her as Diego's little pet puppy. And she has this discussion about how she lovingly lights a cigar for him and places it in his mouth. And Nevelson doesn't see this as loving. She sees it as disgusting. She does not get how you can just be a slave to a man like that. And I feel like that tells you a lot about Louise Nevelson because she never actually remarries, but she has this string of affairs. They're people she admires. They're people she's interested in. They're people that run galleries she wants to get into. And there's always this level of like academic or intellectual curiosity along with her love affairs 
But she does also admit that the secret to a woman becoming a successful artist in a period where women were really looked down upon as having girl brains is fucking. She says flat out the secret to living a life of luxury and, you know, getting where you want to go is to have sex. Now, don't think I'm slut-shaming Louise Nevelson. I'm just being very honest about this because I feel like it's part of her charisma. If she were a dude during this time, I really think she'd have been seen as like your international um, playboy sort, especially with the uh, love of wealthy clothing that she has. Her persona, especially as she gets older, becomes its own art in a way. It becomes tied up in the things she creates. I feel like a lot like what Andy Warhol did. I like to think of Andy Warhol as a rock star before rock stars were cool. Kind of took that like rebel attitude and turned it into a fine art. And Nevelson is kind of doing the same thing, but she's a sexually liberated woman in a time when that's sketch at the very best um i salute her for it you know what i'm you know have sex with other consenting adults that's okay with me use protection you're the parents if parents are listening to this they're probably covering their children's ears and screaming but you know what you need to you need to tell your kids that or you'll end up with grandkids anyways and one of the hard things about nevelson is you'll notice we've talked about a significant period of her life and her artwork doesn't really start to take off until the 1950s. So she's, she's, she's an older lady. And honestly, most artists, they hit their stride in their 40s or 50s. So a little bit younger than she does. But she is struggling on a starvation level until she's an old woman. It's almost like the word no just makes this woman more determined. And you kind of have to admire that. The first show that starts to really make her a breakthrough is at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And that's usually abbreviated MoMA, M-O-M-A. So if I ever say MoMA, that's what I mean. And the shows start to pick up from there. She's in the Venice Benali, which is kind of like getting a Grammy for the art world. It, there's these big art fairs. And if you're part of them, it's a really big deal and it can make or break you. But it isn't really until the 60s, 70s, and 80s, like the last 30 years of her life, that she becomes this big deal. Her work in the 50s that starts to get her noticed are these flat black sculptures that have pieces carved into them. They're what we would call a relief. And it's in the 50s when she starts to take these components off of the streets, out of the trash from her fire stack. Um, from industrial sites and combine these wood pieces inside boxes and then stack the boxes. I said in the Mondrian podcast that she was part of his studio life and spoke with him quite a bit and that he has this huge influence on her, partly to organize herself. And another one is to look at the rhythm of geometrics. And I feel like that's, that's a strong influence here. She's always worked heavily in geometrics. I don't want you to feel like she just steals this from Mondrian. But looking at him and looking at these other heavily abstracted guys from Europe that she both studied with in Europe and are now meeting in New York because they fled Nazi Germany, it really, it has this impact on her and her work becomes a lot tighter and a lot better. And that's what good art education should do for people. Some of these assemblages, these large found object works are wall pieces that hang 
others, especially, like I said, towards the end of her life, become these large, looming castles. And some of them are called castle. They all have this, like, naming convention that's kind of ethereal and from the heavens. And I would like to read you a poem she wrote for one of her shows during this period that I feel like I've always loved it, so that's why I want to share it. Queen of the Black Black, in the valley of all all, with one glance sees the king, mountain top, the climb, the way, restless winds, midnight blooms, tons, tons of colors, tones of water drops, crystal reflections, painting mirages, celestial splendor, highest grandeur, queen of the black black, king of the all all. And this was written in 1961. Is almost kind of a peer of the abstract expressionists like Jackson Pollock. She's shown with the early pre-fathers of pop art like Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns and is a strong peer of the pop movement, of the minimalist movement. And she kind of reflects all of these things with pop art being heavily dependent upon commercial media. She's using cornices from houses. She's using trash. She's using chair legs. She's using things that you can readily identify. But at the same time, everything she does has a flat color palette. She very early embraces spray paint so that her things have this like very slick matte figure. There's one piece I know about that's a very dark purple. Otherwise, they're mostly black or white. And that white a lot of times is turned to cream with age. That's just something especially early white paints do. There's also gold and silver pieces. And these large box pictures are really when somebody says Louise Nevelson, what they're thinking about. Towards the end of her life, she begins to experiment with public art. And I could get in an argument here with the difference between the word public art and graffiti. Basically, public art is accepted art pieces that are installed in a site and understood to be made by people of value. We tend to not value self-trained artists like graffiti artists. That's another podcast. Anyways, and with these public works, she has to start examining media that is not wood. So she starts experimenting in foundry uh, made steel pieces, uh, plexiglass. She loves plexiglass. She's a big fan of embracing the future and seeing how things can change. And I couldn't find great photos of any of her plexiglass pieces. There's, I'm sure a lot of you people who listen to YouTube a lot are aware of how weird copyright is and institutions want to make money off of their copyrighted media. So without paying hundreds of dollars so that I can use one image in this podcast, I wasn't able to pull those. But that said, you might search them. They're very interesting. I feel like they have a dialogue once again with the earlier people that she's been looking at. I would point out Maholi Nagy from the Bauhaus in specific. And it's in the 1980s that she passes away. So she lives to be in her 90s. And like I said, that persona of her in her later years is this old woman with scarves and ridiculously long eyelashes and furs. And she loves photographers. There's tons of pictures of her with her artwork. And uh, Robert Maplethorpe, who's a very famous photographer that sadly died very young, um, takes these great pictures of her where she's almost this like 
haunting art skull from the beyond. Like I, I don't like to focus on women's appearances that much because I feel like in a way that demeans their value. But with Louise Nevelson, she was so dedicated to her presentation. When you see works like Nevelson's, which is very rhythmic, which is these pieces that are interestingly contained in these capsules. And if you think about her life, there are these encapsulated periods. She's a refugee from Russia. She's a small town girl in Maine. She's a wealthy industrialist wife. She's a struggling artist. She's a successful artist. It's almost like the rhythm of these pieces and all those little shrapnels and fragments and tiny muted elements say a lot about how she's experienced her life. It's all these little pieces in these little boxes. And I do you think a lot of her work had influence on design, especially in the 1970s and early 80s? Like, it was the shiznizzle. To take old printing press letter trays, because those are becoming obsolete with digital printing, and put little figurines in them. I, I, I really, that's a lot of her work uses, like, letter trays and wood pieces like that. So I, I kind of think it's a nod to Nevelson. But with this kind of artist, you tend to hear the words my five-year-old can make that. And I find this extremely funny because I found a bunch of images while I'm looking at her of early art school people or children uh, learning about her in art history and then recreating work like hers. And it's terrible. Like, I did not... Okay, I maybe found a few that were very well done, but for the most part, it's just ridiculously bad. And I think part of it is you have to look at how methodical her gallery, or how methodical her studio practice was. Studio is the right word there. She had this studio that looked like chaos, but all of the little bits and pieces she used were set into these like cubbies and crevices. And she would pull them out, arrange them, rearrange them, rethink a lot like Mondrian would tape and retape and think. All of it is very well thought out. She doesn't just throw things in these boxes. She does work on multiple pieces at once, and that's part of why this work is really prolific. But there's a lot of design that goes into it as well. This isn't something that's just pulled out of the air. This is something that's deliberate, well thought out, and I actually challenge you to do better. If you can rip off a Nevelson to the point that I can't tell, show it to me and then please destroy it because you don't want to be that person that rips off artists. <laughs> Our intro and outro is created by a New York City DJ named Joe Giggs. If you're looking for some fun rhythmic DJ-ness, check out Joe Giggs. Also, the intro and outro were samples from the Conant Project by Iridile. Check out our show notes for more information and have a creative day. Also, don't forget to like or share. We're also on Facebook. Oh my gosh, tell your friends. Art history. Yay.
Hi, I'm Vanessa Van Alstein, and this is Art I Swear. Now, I have a fun little update for you this week. It turns out, you know, kind of funny, because we talked about Impressionism last week. A performance artist recently did a performance of Olympia by Manet in the Louvre and got kicked out and caused a whole ruckus because apparently naked women still piss people off 150 years later, 150 plus years later. So uh, just a little something to think about when you're looking at that naked woman in uh, the Louvre all sprawled out with her maid and her cat. Well, the reason is, is because she's trying to have a dialogue with an old painting. I'll admit I struggle with performance art probably more than I should, but you know, I think it is a legitimate commentary on a painting that was about ordinary women. Now on to our topic today. We're going to talk about a modernist artist named Piet Mondrian. Now, if you want a quick and dirty summary, Piet Mondrian was born in, I'm going to say it's pronounced Amersfoort, Netherlands. In 1872, he died in Manhattan, New York in 1944, which makes him Dutch. He was famous for these block paintings and being a member of the Distill movement. Da, 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 da. That's all, folks. You don't really have to listen to the rest of the podcast. Ha ha, just kidding. We'll get a little bit more in depth here. Now, his father, um, you know, to give you a little background on him, was a Calvinist preacher who and draftsman who was also involved in a primary school. Um, this means that he was a very strict Orthodox Protestant Christian. Calvinists aren't really Protestant. Whatever. Calvinists do, however, believe in predestination. This is the idea that people are born on earth, saved through Jesus, or not saved, and that everything that kind of happens in between is, well, you know, stuff God's already figured out. So try to be a good person, but, you know, you were born being a good or bad person, so... You know, (laughs) you know what's in your heart and you know if you're going to heck. I've never really completely gotten Calvinism. You guys are great. Nice. You You help create Mondrian. But, you know. All right. So how does this affect Mondrian's art? Well, early on, number one, because his father's a draftsman, he's exposed to art. They're more accepting of art school than a lot of, uh, you know, kind of middle class families would be back in the day. But he also has this spiritual connection with the world around him. And he really spends the first 30 years of his life struggling with that, who he is, how that fits in the world. His artwork is, you know, he's always got a dialogue with what's going on in the day. Very early on, it's impressionist influence. It's the loose brush strokes. It's the impression of light. And it quickly moves into what I would call a fauvism or post-impressionism where, uh, you know, he's talking about Gauguin or Van Gogh, as most of you probably know, who's got that like real bright colors, uh, things are more primitive or primal. And uh, it's looking more back at the modern aspects of art such as the things that we're starting to see from Africa. It's very much referencing those bright colors in the woodblock prints. And those bright colors that come out of that period are going to be really important for Mondrian later on. Now, once again, most of my relatives sound like King of the Hill rejects. So these Dutch words I'm going to pronounce, please give me a little bit of leeway. I I think even non-Dutch people struggle with some of them. At least it's not Polish. (laughs) Mondrian's spiritualism draws him to start to look at the nature of the world around him. Early on, he's very interested in plain air paintings. Like I said, he paints a lot of trees. There's a period he goes through where he's got these very like blocky pictures that are of windmills. 
And I've actually seen one of these at the Dallas Museum of Art. And there is a major difference between seeing art in person and art in just pictures. And I have to say, those early windmills, I personally, I'm not that impressed with them. The subject is so important, but not very original. He's not doing anything in this really early part of his career, his post-World War I career. That's, you know, really greatly remarkable. Now, closer to World War I, he is in Paris, and he starts to see cubist painting and this is where you're probably going to think about that guy everybody knows picasso um or maybe the founder of the movement who picasso kind of copies who i want to say his name is said george brock i always want to say jorge because i live so close to mexico anyways a very limited palette when you start talking about cubism it's a lot of browns they're trying to show all of the angles of something if you can think about an object when you pick it up since we don't have the magic of 3d modeling back then they're trying to look at an object and capture all of the sides to like kind of fold it out and present it in this flat space as having both dimension and kind of no dimension in a way so that you know all of the sides are present i'm probably like spinning in a circle here trying to explain this which is part of the broken down abstracts of this. And once again, these guys are very much looking at primitive African art. And I say primitive art, you know what? That's probably not fair. They're looking at tribal art from Africa, mostly North Africa, some Saharan Africa. Picasso has a really big collection of African masks that are influential in a lot of his paintings and some of them, uh, the nude women he paints are wearing them. And, you know, th this is important for cubism, but this isn't something that interests Mondrian as much. His old spiritualism from being raised as a Calvinist, uh, being exposed to more ideas in Paris, it begins to broaden. He becomes less focused on Christianity and more focused on universal truths. One of the things he says about his work, which begins to become more boxy, more about lines, I believe it is possible that through horizontal and vertical lines constructed with awareness, but not with calculation, led by high intuition and brought to harmony and rhythm, these basic forms of beauty supplemented if necessary by other direct lines or curves can become a work of art as strong as it is true. That comes from this idea he has of plastic art. And this is one of those words that doesn't translate well. We think of plastic and you're thinking about those cheap cups you got in the cupboard, right? That you only keep around because you drop the last ones and break it everywhere and your husband will yell at you and then make you get ones with lids because you have the world's most obnoxious kitten anyway. So you have a bastion of well-designed Starbucks cups. Not that kind of plastic. We're talking about plastic as in movement, as in the quality to take on different forms. So, that, that plastic, the ability to adapt. He begins to form these theories about art encapsulating more than just form. That the value and the spiritual quality of painting is best expressed in something that is not just the physical. So he begins to abandon his trees. He begins to abandon his windmills. And he starts to move into these pure lines vertical and horizontal he's very interested in dichotomy you know one side of this one side of that 
not as much the balance in between, but the extremes that things go to. And I feel like this is a very Western viewpoint at the time. Now, I said he'd gone to Paris pre-World War I. Well, fortunately, unfortunately, he goes to visit some family before the war breaks out. And as the war stretches into Paris, he's safe, but he can't go back to France. The Netherlands stays out of World War I. They remain neutral all through the conflict. And there's several artists and architects who are trapped there that begin to talk about the new ideas in art, and they form their own school, Distill Forms. Distill translates into English as the style, and this is more than fashion. The style also has to do with building and construction in its root word, which is something that's lost a little bit in the English translation. This is the problem when texts and philosophical theories come over into English from another language. That's one of the things that's lost in Heidegger a lot is when you're talking about the root of a certain word, if it doesn't have the same meaning in the other language, it's hard to explain. So try to understand that style means more than just fashion to these guys, distill. They even sit down and write a manifesto, which is very popular during the modernist period, which I argue occurs between roughly before World War One and about 20 years after World War II. Some people say it stretches into the 70s and then you start to have postmodernism. I feel like there's enough periods in between there that modernism really kind of starts to die after World War II. Anyways, mo- during modernism, everybody loves a manifesto. And this is the manifesto of the distill. Number one, there is an old and new consciousness of time. The old is connected with the individual. The new is connected with the universal. The struggle of the individual against the universe is revealing itself in the world war as well as in the art of the present day. Number two, the war is destroying the old world and its contents, individual domination in every state. Number three, The new art has brought forward what the new consciousness of time contains, a balance between the universal and the individual. Number four, the new consciousness is prepared to realize the internal life as well as the external life. And this is the plasticity we were talking about. That's that's me interjecting. Number five, traditions, dogmas, and the domination of the individual are opposed to this realization. Number six, the founders of the new plastic art therefore call upon all who believe in the reformation of art and culture to annihilate these obstacles of development as they have annihilated in the new plastic art by abolishing natural form, that which prevents the clear expression of art, the utmost consequence of all art notion. Number seven, the artists of today have been driven the whole world over by the same consequences and therefore have taken part from an intellectual point of view in this war against the domination of individual despotism. They therefore sympathize with all who work for the formation of an intellectual unity of life, art, culture, either intellectually or materially. Number eight, the monthly editions of The Style, which is a magazine, founded by the purpose Try to attain the new wisdom of life in an exact manner. Number nine, cooperation is possible by, number one, sending the entire approval, name, address, and profession 
to the editor of The Style, number two, sending critical, philosophical, architectural, scientific, literary, musical articles or reproductions, number three, translating articles in different languages or distributing thoughts published in The the Style. And the signers of this, they're painters like Theo van Doesburg, um, Piet Mondrian, there's a poet, Anthony, I'm going to say that's Koch, oh oh my goodness, Um, G. Vanderloo is a sculpture, there's an architect, Jan Wills. The big guys here are Theo van Doesburg, um, Bart van Leck, and you know, Piet Mondrian, they all have this really heavy influence on each other. And they're all very interested in basic form. They're trying to get rid of that concept of man and art and find the pure essence of art as a way of purification. I think this is interesting to look at too in the face of World War One. And this is not something that would quote me on a paper, but maybe an academic could study a little more someday, is to look at how World War One was fought. Previously, soldiers did form into lines and march swiftly into battle and shot at each other. Guerrilla warfare is part of what won the American Revolution because the British were wearing bright red coats and just marching in straight lines. But World War I abandons this and we scar the ground. We dig these trenches, these nightmare holes where men sit in divisions, broken up by the lines that these painters are very much putting on paper and they're isolated to these little quadrants the french here the english here the germans here the austrians there and we're mass manufacturing war the human being that has been the ideal in art for so very long has created a better way to kill themselves guns can shoot hundreds of bullets in a second Tanks are marching over the ground. Gas is filling trenches and killing men. This is when war becomes a new level of ugly. And in a lot of ways, it's mirroring the industrial revolution that is sweeping through the world. The revolution that's bringing new lines and wires, new city planning, which Brussels is an inspiration to Mondrian because of the civil engineering that occurs in it. The world is increasingly defined by these geometric lines because that is what the machine makes. And so these artists and like are looking at the perfection of those lines, the removal of the organic from art. And you start to see in these isolated Dutch painters of the distilled during World War I, increasingly geometric painting works. Mondrian starts his block period now, and he begins to experiment with these paintings he calls lozenges, which are paintings that are hung like a diamond instead of a square. He's basically turned them so that they hang different. And they have that broken line quality. He's taking it from his tree paintings that he did during the Cubist period, where they were these you know, just barely a tree kind of curves off, kind of has the lines. He's still referencing things. One of the lozenges is about docks. 
Um, and those are a little later. He explores those more after World War I, but that's, that's the ones I think about. And he starts to break away from the Cubist color scheme. He starts to develop his own. He did go through this period where he's using these really interesting diluted pastels. And this starts to change. He starts to develop that love of primary colors that is going to so define him. And if you don't know what a primary color is, it's the three colors you use to mix all painted medium, which is red, blue, yellow. This is different when you get into like light and print and stuff, but we're just focusing on red, blue, yellow, black, white. To him, this is the core of creation. This is the core you need to create artwork and it's the core he's going to use in the rest of his paintings after world war one and he does go back to paris and he does begin to expand on what he's doing he's very much a modernist and he's very influential at this point but still predominantly a european painter and after world war one he begins to create the paintings in the 20s and 30s and if you think about that that's that's a, almost 100 years ago now it might even be a hundred years ago when you listen to this podcast. <laughs> the paintings he creates are about this segmented reality. It's black lines that don't quite reach the edge of the paint paper. And looking for images of him during this period, if you want to root out fake ones, they'll cut off all the way at the end of the painting. His like in-between works don't do this. It's his later works that reach all the way to the edge of the paper. And there's these um, white sections like cells and these color sections of one of the primary colors. Now, what's interesting in reproductions of Mondrian paintings versus seeing actual Mondrian paintings, which once again, it's very different seeing art in person sometimes. In the reproductions, they look almost like a piece of print, like a screen print or something that comes out of a printer. They're very perfect. And there are still very, very perfect in person, but the brush stroke is more present. Also, a lot of them have started to crack just due to age. Uh, oil paints dry out and they break open. Acrylic paint isn't really something that you're going to see prominent in art until post-World War II, really more into the 60s and 70s. Acrylic paint at its heart is a water-based plastic. Oil paint is oil-based I guess it's kind of like a plastic, but it's not what we think. So those cracks have become part of the dialogue with his work, along with those very faint brush strokes and how much he's gone over the colors. In some of the paintings, it's very obvious that there's a line of blue on the edge of what was once the red paint. I like to think this is something that probably influenced people like Andy Warhol, who later offsets his prints. Mondrian isn't as deliberately doing that and that's not what the work's about but it's still a key as to his process because a lot like Monet when I talked about him in our Impressionist podcast Mondrian was a meticulous mofo he does everything with complete precision and intention and you might think that these paintings are deceptively simple how hard could it be to set that up and do it. But he agonizes over every choice on the canvas and often changes things several times over. And when you're working with white paint, especially white oil paint, that is a difficult and agonizing decision. One of the ways that he does this, and you can occasionally see recreations of this, is he set up a giant white wall where he would lay out his black elements, 
in either tape or paper and his colored elements in paper and move them around. And he was one of the people that embraced the concept of all over art, which is important in the later Bauhaus schools. If you're thinking of the band Bauhaus, you know, red on black, translucent, Bella Lugosi's dead, not the band. They took their logo and um, their name from a school of artists that exists in Germany post-World War One, and kind of post-World War Two. They come to America because a lot of them were Jewish and had to flee. This idea of all over art originally comes from Wagner, and this is based on an old book I had on the Bauhaus. Um, when he created his operas, he believed in everything coordinating, down to how the hall looked, to the tickets, to the handbills that were handed out. He wanted full coordination. And this idea eventually passes on to a Dutch artist named Henri van der Velde. And van der Velde is in dialogue with the later Bauhaus, obviously Mondrian as well. And another interesting Mondrian fact, originally he went to the school that Van Gogh went to, but like Van Gogh became kind of disillusioned with how interested they were in classicism and blazed his own path by going to Paris. So in this period between World War I and World War II, his work reaches what we're all thinking about as the typical Mondrian paintings. And he continues this work up until World War II, when unfortunately Europe goes to war again. And when Europe goes to war, he's faced with the fact that he's really not safe in the Netherlands. The Nazis hated modern art. They felt like it was primitive, that it was base, and that it was, you know, that it flew in the face of everything that the Reich was trying to do. Also, Hitler's a failed artist, and the kind of art that he was trying to make was classicism. It was landscapes. It was nudes. And I've seen some of them. He's not a very good artist. I mean, I think it's obvious since he funked out of art school, but he can't even nail um, perspective, which is a really basic element of art. Hold on. I've got a kitten sniffing the microphone. Go away, kitty. In the face of what's obviously persecution, a lot of modernist artists flee to the America and Mondrian decides to go to Manhattan. And when he gets to Manhattan, he's surrounded by something that has influenced him this whole time, but he's now got greater access to, and that's jazz. If you can think about jazz music now, the like free flowing scat, like booted bop 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 bop, some Ella Fitzgerald, maybe some Cab Calloway, Dizzy Gillespie, that fun music that's that fun music that's real hip and swift and has come out of New Orleans and has really kind of colored the way the world listens to things now that big influence on rock and roll that's free flowing and fun and you don't even have to read music to make it you can just go ahead and do it and be a jazz artist and I'll think about a Mondrian once again you have these like segmented pieces and think about how jazz hits. It hits on these big segmented notes. It's one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, bop, one, two, three, four, bam, that kind of thing. And so when he's exposed to this in New York in the 40s, he looks at that and he looks at the American culture that exists in New York and his artwork takes on its final metamorphosis. The lines aren't always black anymore. Sometimes they're yellow. And the squares shrink and they become part of the lines. And it really becomes about traffic, the civil engineering, the civil planning of New York, combined with that constant hum and rhythm 
that exists alongside this jazz music that he's now really able to immerse himself in. It changes how he sees things. My favorite painting and one of his last ones from this period is Broadway Boogie Woogie. I think it's Broadway Boogie Woogie. It's Broadway Boogie, maybe. I always want to add the woogie because the woogie's fun. How can you have the boogie without the woogie? You know what I'm saying? Anyways, and these are yellow lines with the red, blue, white, black squares on it. And it looks kind of like looking straight down on traffic. And it looks kind of like blinking electric lights. And it looks kind of like a city that's starting to build up to become this neon paradise where artists can thrive. And it looks kind of like little ants moving around in a giant ant bed. It looks like the essence of New York City. And it looks like the promise of America, this new modern utopia where the threatened people of Europe can now escape and start again, where we're not so entrenched in the hatred of European culture that's built up between centuries of wars and centuries of prejudice that led to the horrors of World War II. It's, it's promise. And if I had to give a pictorial explanation of why America is great in the years after World War II, I would actually show you these paintings by Mondrian because I feel like they capture it on its most basic elemental level. Which if you think back on what he's trying to do with art, capture that dichotomy, capture that place where people don't exist, but there is still a spiritual elegance in painting, a spiritual essence captured in the paint, removed from just one figural representation. I feel like these really get that. And there's a painting that's come to light recently called Victory Boogie, which was the last one he was working on when he passed away in the 40s. That shows how he did this. He's taken his art off of the walls. And he's using little bits of colored paper to figure out where he wants to paint or overpaint or do whatever. And this painting actually still has those little pieces of paper attached to them. And I think that that's so cool because it's still this little piece of him thinking, planning, deciding. It's still that little piece of meticulousness. It's still that man that completely changed his apartment so that it matched all of the artwork he was making so that he would be constantly thinking about how to perfect his craft. Want to talk about an OCD guy? I know Louise Nevelson said that the clean starkness of his studio really influenced her sculptural work, which are these box pieces that have like cut out piece of wood that are painted a flat color. And that's what Mondrian also gives to American artists is the influence of the European style brought into America to live out his final years. He's capturing this essence of modernity and America's benefiting from that. And that is the one gift that was given to us by World War II, inadvertently by Nazi Germany, was all of these brilliant scientists and artists and creative individuals that came here, that soaked in American culture, and then taught it back to us from the eyes of the old European masters. And it has become the language of what America is as far as our creative arts. I can't always speak outside of creative arts because, hey, you are what you know. 
All right, this has been an episode of Art I Swear. This podcast was requested by my friend Michael C. Mike's thanks so much for the suggestion. I hadn't really looked at a lot of Mondrian's work before I researched this podcast, but you know, it was good to see it and it's given me some ideas. Art I Swear would like to acknowledge these creatives. Ellie Klaus has written a book called Stealing the Wolf Prince. It's a romantic kind of fairy tale written with I, I like to think modern sensibilities but you know with a real romantic eye it's available now on amazon's kindle uh at a reasonable price for your ebooks check her out she's a really good friend of mine and in lieu of you know sponsors i'd like to acknowledge some creative people i know Art I Swear would like to thank Joe Giggs for our intro and outro. If you're looking for an awesome DJ in the New York City area who can definitely make you Broadway boogie woogie, check out Joe Giggs. That's G-I-G-S. Art I Swear would also like to thank Iridial's Conant Project for allowing us to sample number stations for the intro outro. This is Art I Swear, and you have a creative day.